Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I have my special guest host, I guess, with me today, Stokely, who's hanging out with me for a little while. But this is a, a, another powerful episode where we have uh, Senator Agbari from the great state of Tennessee. And we also have one of my good friends, Corey Stern, joining us today. Corey is an intriguing and pivotal figure in the Flint settlement. And so we'll get into that as well. But you know, I'm rocking my LeBron James jersey, and, and it's just kind of apropos and ironic that I have um, Stokely here with me, because like many of you, I'm following not only what's happening in the wake of Jacob Blake, but the ripple effects across the country with protests ranging from protesters taking to the streets to the NBA and Major League Baseball teams. Shout out particularly to the Milwaukee Bucks and the Milwaukee Brewers for doing the absolutely right thing. And that's using their platform to focus everyone's attention on what's open season on black men. I've had a few people ask me what the end game is for the boycott and what that would look like. And that's always an odd question to me because I'm sure they want what we want. And that's real accountability for officers shooting a man and using lethal force when they didn't have to. So as a reminder, here's what accountability looks like. It looks like full and most importantly, transparent investigations. It looks like an investigation handled by the Wisconsin State Police and the Wisconsin Attorney General, because I don't think you can trust that police department and you probably can't trust them either. But you definitely can't trust that local district attorney to do this matter justice. And it looks like charges that fit the facts in a day in court. Now, obviously, we all want convictions in these cases, but as a trial attorney, I can tell you I can truly tell you that right now, a jury in Wisconsin is going to look a lot like all of our Facebook comments in the last 24 hours, where all of our white friends, or not all, but a good bit of our white friends, will they'll look at us and say, or they'll write in the comments what they always say in cases like this. What did he do? And why didn't he just comply with police? The litany of unarmed black men who have complied and died, it's not worth rehashing right now, but let's be honest, for a lot of people in this country, not complying with the police is sadly a death sentence. Meanwhile, Dylan Roof was arrested peacefully and they brought him a whopper. Let's never forget. So if one day we can pause basketball and baseball, we're better forward. And sadly, we all know about the NFL and that ain't pausing shit for anybody. And that's a reminder that the NFL and its plantation politics went on today without a hitch, and they always will, because no matter how many podcasts Roger Goodell does, he doesn't care, and his owners don't either. Now let's get into another great episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast with Senator Akbari from the Tennessee State Senate and my good friend Corey Stern, and who will tell us about the Flint, Michigan, $600 million settlement. Senator, welcome to the Bukhari Sellers Podcast. It's good to have you on. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm well. Excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. I, you know, working with some of the good folks, uh, Kamau Marshall and, and others over at the Biden for America campaign. It's good. I, I wanted to have you on for a while, so I am glad that you are finally here. How's the family? Is everybody safe and healthy? And I don't know about happy, but at least safe and healthy during this time? <laughs> Yes, safe and healthy, trying to be happy, holding it down in Memphis. How about on your end? 
You know, I love Funky Town, USA. That's what we call Memphis in my household. You know, my, my mother is a graduate of Hamilton High School in Memphis, Tennessee. So was my mom. So was my mom. <laughs> my mom was a part of the desegregating class at Hamilton oh, wow. High School. Yeah. So we have that. We have that little bit of history. I, I want to start off by just saying now you've been in the state legislature in Tennessee since I believe 2013, uh, when you were first elected to the House and you've been in the Senate since 2019. I can imagine this as a former legislator. I, with all due respect, I always say I'm the best type of legislator, which is retired. <laughs> uh, but talk, talk to our listeners about what it's like to be a progressive state legislator in a deeply conservative state in, like Tennessee in the age of Trump. What's that like in day in and day out? <laughs> right. OK, so I started in the age of Obama, but you could tell that the Trump train was coming forward because uh, anytime there was any sort of movement uh, in the in the blue direction or anything that had the name Obama in it, they revolted. It was it was pretty absurd from Medicaid expansion to things on immigration to even Common Core, which was insane. Uh, but being <laughs> in Tennessee, <laughs> uh, we we say that. Um, actually, I talked to a songwriter in Chattanooga, and he said, "I'm blue in a red state," and that's how it is sometimes. You just see things pass that you try and fight against, but you really don't have the numbers to do it. Now we're working on that. We've recruited some good candidates. We have some good uh, chances, but it, it, it's difficult sometimes. You want things to pass, it just won't pass. So my motto is we try and pass good things and we try and stop bad things. Yeah, people don't understand it. You're, you're, you're in leadership role in, in the Senate and with the Legislative Black Caucus. And, and Senator, you know, I found my job a lot of times in the, in the state house just trying to prevent bad things from happening. Do you ever find your, yourself just kind of, I know you want to stay progressive and you want to stay forward thinking, but a lot of times you're just playing, you're playing goalie on some of these things. Do you find that to be the case? Oh yeah. We have those days where we're like, goodness gracious, are our colleagues trying to out crazy themselves uh, on different <laughs> pieces of legislation they're passing. And so, yeah, when we we're trying to get things on the record so that if there is a lawsuit, we can kind of give some power to that. And then, of course, just trying to fight things. Now, when I was in the House, we had more of a chance. Shockingly, the Democrats and the Libertarians really did come together. I think if you went too far to the left and too far to the right, sometimes there was a, a middle ground. But in the Senate, it's a different story. But we do we play goalie every day. We suit up for battles we know we might lose, but we still fight anyway. <laughs> I, I call it the definition of insanity. I went to work every day just hoping and praying for a different outcome, but knowing at the end of the day it really wasn't, really wasn't going to happen. Uh, right. Senator Akbari, let me ask you this. House Bill 8005. Y'all have been in the news a lot, and I uh, don't shake your head. It's a law your governor signed recently that severely punishes protesters. Tell us about that, where that came from. How the hell anybody thinks that's constitutional? Um, any, any of those things. Okay, so I'll just say this. My phrase I've been saying the whole time, it's ridiculous. It is mean-spirited. We've had a group of protesters outside of the state capitol probably 60 days now. They don't even have tents. They have three canopies. But a lot of our colleagues, my colleagues, the main source that they get their news from is Fox News. And so, one, they tried to pass, or they did pass legislation uh, that kind of, talked against these autonomous zones and it would hold a city responsible financially for any damages. But then they have this awful bill. The, the, the part that's the most disturbing to me is that it makes it a felony to camp out on state property after 10 p.m. if you are protesting or you've been, they call it illicit camping. Um, and, and they think it's okay because there's a warning. Well, you can you please leave. And then if you don't leave, then you could be arrested. One to six years in prison. And I told my colleagues in my remarks on the floor, I said, listen, you guys always want to talk about Dr. King. And we just passed a resolution 
for John Lewis, you guys, mm -mm, no, you would have, this is the same type of legislation that would have made them convicted felons. This is the most absurd thing. We fought against it. And the, the crazy thing is a bunch of my Republican colleagues did not like the fact that it would make it a felony. But the House pushed for it and they gave in. Even the governor, when he signed it, he was like, oh, I don't really like some provisions, but I'm going to sign it anyway. It is one of the worst pieces of legislation I've ever seen, ever. Should, should people outside of Tennessee be concerned? I mean, I know you're very familiar with ALEC. We talk about ALEC on, a, on this show a lot about, you know, these think tanks, these conservative think tanks mm -hmm. that push these bills and ideologies. Should people around the country be concerned about this reaction or overcorrection to people in the streets demanding police accountability? I do think that they should be on alert because it's certainly some sort of playbook where they're suggesting that there should be stiffer penalties. In Tennessee, they did the same thing around the Occupy Wall Street movement. That's when they first made it a misdemeanor. or some, They first put some conditions in place around camping on state property, but always. I mean, they're always checking for each other to see what the other one is doing and what works. Now, I'm hoping, because I've talked to several of my colleagues, uh, that we will come back when the legislature resumes in January, and this will not be a felony anymore. But again, that might just be rhetoric they're putting out because it's kind of hot right now. Who knows? But yeah, I think everyone should be on alert, especially when you have someone in the White House. Hopefully in 2021, <laughs> we won't have him in the White House anymore. But when you have someone in the White House who will tear gas peaceful protesters so that he can hold an upside down Bible and pretend to be a Christian. <laughs> uh, what are you, you talking you about? Two, Cor two Corinthians. <laughs> yeah, two, two Corinthians, you know. Two Corinthians. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so since uh, we're going to get to the state of play and, and talk about Biden and Harris in a minute, but I'm just so enamored by your career arc and trajectory and thankful for all that you do, uh, especially uh, out there in Shelby County. Talk to us about the type of police reform work, because while we're waiting on something to happen in Washington, D.C., which simply ain't happening, talk to me about the police reform work that you're doing on the local level in, in, in the state of Tennessee, something that can be a roadmap for others. Yes, for sure. When the um, demonstrations first uh, kind of started in Memphis, my goal was to get, because there were different different uh, groups protesting for different things or for the same thing, but different groups who didn't necessarily agree with each other. My goal was to get everybody in a room and meet with leadership. I think that the city has actually been pushed to establish a real board to review. And that's something that I've suggested. Like it, it's not a hard thing for you to put people together in a room and review the practices of the police department, because too often folks are defensive and say, well, we don't do this and we don't do chokeholds. Yes, you don't, but you still have instances of police brutality. I mean, we saw folks in Memphis being slammed to the ground for no reason, just because they were standing in the street. Uh, so for me, we've kind of modeled it in the legislature. We have looked at legislation that they've passed in Colorado uh, around police brutality and really revising how policing is looked at. And some of the core parts of that legislation, we've tentatively been able to get some buy-in. But again, our legislature doesn't resume until January, so I really don't know. But the main thing we're looking at is having some strengthening the accountability for police yes. officers. If Yeah, you know, because we have citizen review boards, but the legislature got mad uh, at Nashville for, I think, building in subpoena power for those boards. <laughs> and they passed a law last year where no civilian review board could have subpoena power. It would have to go through their city council or county commission. It's just... So you see what we're working against. Um, but I think at least they've all said out loud, well, what happened to George Floyd was wrong and we need to make sure it doesn't happen again. And 
we're trying to take advantage of that. But chokeholds, any type of chokeholds, because chokeholds aren't allowed in Tennessee, but there's still a little caveat in there where they can be used. Uh, and we're trying to tighten up those laws so they won't have those types of loopholes. Yeah. And it's crazy. You know, people always say that I don't want it to happen again. And then here we are again, right, right. with with Jacob and, and his family and uh, Kenosha. And you, you just see a young man being shot in the back seven times and only by the grace of God is he is he still alive? And so while we had this inaction, I'm he- I'm glad to hear. Is there any consideration? Um, some states like Pennsylvania uh, have done a Brianna's Law. They've joined Oregon and South Carolina, albeit temporarily, in banning no-knock warrants. Is that something that you all are considering? And, and I know that you are, but is it something that, that you think you'll be able to get on the, the legislative track, whether or not it passes or not, at least push forward? Certainly, it will be something I push on a state level, but I know the city of Memphis is already pushing it. I think they might have actually passed the resolution. I have to confirm that, but definitely it's something we're looking at on a state level. It's ridiculous. And it's just playing. My colleagues always say we don't need to piecemeal it. We don't need to just have one city doing this, one city doing that. So perfect opportunity. But they're definitely working on that. And, And I will say what happened in Wisconsin, you just look, I couldn't share the video because I, I feel like it's it's so traumatizing to see something like yeah. that. His children were in the car. I That's mean, what broke me. That 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 yeah. broke me. And then t- this morning on CNN, we actually um, played the the other angle of the video from the other side of the car, and you just hear the women and screaming the women the women yeah. and children screaming because it was I believe it was Allison Camerata that said it. She said it's like they knew what was going to happen. And I was like, yeah, because they yeah. did know what was going right. to happen. And so, right. you know, I mean, it, listen, we are, uh, both you and I are, are are big Biden-Harris supporters. We, I know, I, I feel like we have different categories of voters this go around. You have like big Biden-Harris supporters on one side and you have people who uh, just want to get Donald Trump the hell out the White House. You know, they, we're, right. we're on the same side of the ticket. But what are you telling the Biden-Harris campaign? We know they have a robust black agenda. We know they have a, a robust black equity plan. And now we have a black vice president. But what are some of the roles you want to play and some of the things you still wanted to encourage them to do over the next 70 days? Um, and some of the things we both can be doing together to, to build that excitement, but also show that we care and we see people. Yeah, well, um, I think that one, just seeing the type of response that the Biden-Harris campaign has put out based on what happened in Wisconsin is such a stark contrast. Uh, Politics aside, it's such a stark contrast. What I would like to push for, because um, Tennessee is not a state that's in play at all, but you have people who are super excited about trying to help in other states. So really tackling those type of like that's the role I see tackling those types of states to do virtual outreach to do fundraisers particularly because Senator Harris is on the ticket I mean if I have one more black woman or particularly aka or link reach out to me (laughs) (laughs) I tell everyone these aka's are insufferable right now all they want to do is register voters and do fundraisers and I'm like look I (laughs) look just just call just call commonly direct you just call her okay so yeah And then I, the president of Tennessee State is the their international president. So oh, I know. Is, I, Dr. Glover is one of my favorite people, but it's it's exciting. So what I'd like to see is just continued outreach to get out the vote because we're talking, we're leading into um, people being able to request their absentee ballots. Everyone's saying we need to make a plan. I just want to make sure that, particularly in the Black community, particularly for voters who have who don't make like the top list of voters, but really will come out in a presidential election or will come out in this type of scenario, making sure we're reaching out to them and, and just 
taking advantage of people who are in states that are red and are not necessarily going to win, but are eager and excited to get involved. Senator Akbar, let me ask you a question, because you, you, you are in a state that's, I mean, to the west of us. You're, you're not directly to the west of us in the upstate of South Carolina, but I feel some type of just kindred spirit in understanding how difficult it is to win statewide in Tennessee. But what is the path for a Democrat in Tennessee to actually win statewide? You actually have a Senate candidate um, do. from the Funky Town area. Yeah, Marquita yeah. Bradshaw. So, yeah, who pulled yeah, off a miracle I, over there. Well, not yeah. a miracle. I mean, she fought like hell to get it. So I guess it wasn't a miracle. Mm-hmm. She 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 worked hard to get it done. She beat back the DSCC and everybody else. So tell me, what what's the pathway? How how can it be done? And how far are you, are you away from it happening? Um, it's difficult. So two years ago, our last statewide elected, our last Democratic governor ran against Marsha Blackburn. They ran against each other, and he was extremely well financed. And he still lost to that wackadoo. (laughs) Excuse my language. It's not really nice to say, but she just is so far to the right of, I think, what the majority of Tennesseans see. And the race was close, but it wasn't close enough. So I think looking at this scenario with Marquita, who's going to be a lot less well-financed, it's going to be difficult. But certainly she has captured the uh, interest of folks by just by winning. And I think because she's the only black woman uh, on a as a Democratic nominee across the country for U.S. Senate, it will hopefully bring in some more dollars. But it's a very difficult pathway. Uh, it's just it's just where we are right now. I think we have to move a little further from Donald Trump uh, before it, there really will be this pushback. Because when, in the Republican primaries, the one that wins is the one that closely aligns himself to Donald Trump and his politics, which is really scary. You know, I, I still remember the, the race of, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's Harold Ford, Bob Corker, when Corker yes. was the mayor of mm-hmm. Nashville and Harold mm-hmm. Ford, and, and Harold Ford had, he was, uh, you know, winning, uh, you know, a lot of polls yeah. had him, had him winning. Mm-hmm. And in the, the final few months, they ran one of the most atrocious, disgusting ads I've ever seen. Call me. Call, hey, awful. Harold, call hey, It was awful. Call me. It was It was it awful. Was awful. And of course, Corker tried to say it wasn't something that he pushed because he he's from Chattanooga. People kind of. I mean, oh, it was, was the mayor of Chattanooga, yeah. Mayor Nashville. Mayor of Chattanooga, Chattanooga. Chattanooga. Yeah, and but it was awful. I mean, it was awful. It, it was crazy because we almost won. And honestly, when you look at the numbers, um, <laughs> Memphis didn't turn out like it should have. And I think part of that had to do with bad weather on election day, uh, which is why it's so important to get things in the bank on early voting. But. That ad was ridiculous. It was race baiting and it was just, it just played to people's fears. And then you, Barack Obama was elected as our first black president, which we all celebrated. But unfortunately, we lost state houses across the country because of it. And Tennessee was one of them. And now we're trying to fight back. Yeah, we went from having a a four or five, six vote difference to uh, Mm -hmm. a a 16, 20 vote. I mean, it was just... It got to the point it was so bad they didn't they didn't even need us to override vetoes anymore. I mean, we oh, just where we have they have a constitutional majority, so they can do anything they want, and we can just stay home. Yeah, you can just <laughs> they don't need our votes. <laughs> oh man, we're laughing through the depression, people. We're right, laughing we're through laughing the depression. To keep from crying, yeah. I know. <laughs> just a couple more questions for you because I know you're busy trying to save the world. You you're a surrogate <laughs> for the Biden campaign, and you've been a vocal supporter of of, of Joe Biden and one of the more active millennial supporters of the vice president. Why have you been such a vocal supporter of the vice president? And even more importantly, what's your message to 
millennial voters that may be on the fence about a Biden presidency. And let me take off the table. You cannot say that it's just it's 180 degrees different from Donald Trump because that that, that is so true. It, it, should, resonate, it should be motivating <laughs> enough, but it's not. So what are you what are you telling? It's not. Well, um, one, Joe Biden was attractive to me because I've done several little internships across uh, in, in Europe. And I just saw I was there when Donald Trump decided to institute tariffs on our allies. And just to see that type of shift, uh, one, uh, totally disregarding NATO, disregarding our traditional allies, embracing folks like North Korea, China, Russia, that in the beginning was a big thing for me. And then also being able to pass difficult legislation. I know what that's like. I know what it means. And and, and I think anyone who can do it, that resonates for me. Now, that was me. Okay. What I would tell our millennials is, listen, unlike uh, our, well, I won't use Donald Trump. Uh, I think Joe Biden gets it. He knows that there are three main issues we're facing. Uh, One, of course, being the COVID-19 pandemic. The way that we're dealing with it now under the Trump administration is something that's so, you look at other countries, like in Wuhan, they had a beach festival last week. Oh, man. I I mean, you're sitting there looking at pictures, and I dare not say I'm jealous of Wuhan because that would be a clip that comes back and bites me in the ass in any future campaign. (laughs) But, I mean, we can't even really play college football. I mean, what are we doing? Yeah. yeah. So you see his response has totally stopped life as as we want it to be. Um, And, of course, because of that, it's put us into this devastating, devastating recession, uh, which I think we still haven't seen uh, because folks are still receiving additional benefits. We haven't seen what it will look like when you have folks who are unemployed and who are being laid off continually. And if we could get our COVID-19 situation under control, that would change. And then lastly, look at what has happened across this country and marches and demonstrations where people are crying out the systemic racism, the injustice, the inequity that has put us in a corner. It's, it's enough. It's time out for that. It's going to take allies. It's going to take elected officials. It's going to take CEOs and boardrooms. And I'm not talking about performative. I'm talking oh, yeah. about actual real change. Yep. Uh, yep. And I think Joe Biden gets that. And that for me, those are the three three big reasons. I know people will list those a lot, but that that to me, every millennial should be concerned about that because the crisis has stopped life how we know it. And certainly we all have bills to pay. Most of us all have student loans to pay. So I'm, yeah, trust certainly- me, I, I still, I pay mine all, all the time. My wife right. pays them now. So they get paid on time. You know, it was really unattractive when I was, we would be on dates and she'd be like, who calling you? Why, why are you hanging up? Why can't you pick up? And it was just embarrassment. Cause it was Sally Mae calling me all the time. I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to interrupt. So look, I get asked this question all the time. It, it drives me crazy, but I get it asked all the time. So I got to end this interview with asking you this, you, you, Senator Akbar, you're one of the more talented state elected officials and just pure elected officials in the entire country. What's next for you? And do not be ashamed to say that you're looking to run for Congress one day or maybe U.S. Senate. I don't know what it is, but we'll break news on the Bakari Sellers podcast for the Memphis newspaper and everybody else to know. <laughs> so um, in 2022, I'm running for re-election to the Senate. Oh, look at you. Oh, my goodness. See, she followed her talking points. Look at that. (laughs) And we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm all about I enjoy the service and the work that I'm able to do Uh, when I don't enjoy it anymore. I will not do it. And I I am a big believer in not closing any door uh, before God opens it. So we'll see what the future brings. If I'm able to serve the people and enjoy it myself as well, two things, uh, then I will continue to do it.
So we'll see. Well, I love you, Senator Akbari. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bakari Sellers podcast. If I can ever be of any assistance to you, you know you have a, a friend in me. So good to see you again. Thank you. Have a blessed day. All you right too. now. You too. Thank All you. Right. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast. I have Corey Stern with me today. And Corey, we have a mutual good friend, Nick Merrill. Shout out to Nick. Uh, whenever, whenever that baby arrives, I know he's on, on pins and needles. I can't believe Nick's going to be a father, but, but welcome. Talk to me a little bit about uh, just your background. What, what made you want to go into law, where you practice law and the type of work you do? Sure. So like probably a lot of people, when I was a kid, I read To Kill a Mockingbird and I kind of wanted to grow up and be Atticus Finch. <laughs> I grew up in a house um, in a family that was divorced. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was very, very young. And my stepdad was a detective in the bias crimes unit in New York, which was created in the 1980s after some racial incidents that took place in Queens and Howard Beach. And my, my dad was a history teacher and he took me at a very young age. He taught in this inner city school called Satellite East in Brooklyn. He, he took me to see the movie Glory with, you know, buses full of kids from his school that looked nothing like me. And so I had this dad who was a history teacher who taught inner city kids. I had a stepdad who worked as a detective in the bias crimes unit. I read To Kill a Mockingbird. And for some reason, just always was interested in, in kind of civil rights. And, you know, I, I just wanted to do something good. And um, I was traveling for a year when I graduated high school, doing community service projects in the United States and Canada. And I was uh, in Atlanta. I, I took a trip to Athens, Georgia for a day just to see the city. I fell madly in love with Athens. I called my mom from a payphone outside of a pizzeria and begged her to let me go to school there. I was late to apply and I had to write a letter to the admissions office explaining that you know it's not my fault that I was late. I didn't even know y'all existed. And uh, they managed to let me in. And when I graduated from college, I didn't have a plan. And um, kind of felt like law school would be a good idea to to just learn some more and stay in Athens. And then I became a lawyer. Yeah. I, I trust me, I know that journey. That being a lawyer, you you find yourself having like this greater sense of purpose. Tell me about how did you get involved in this Flint Water case? How did your firm I, I see a lot of the work that you all do. It's very and I don't want to use the word victim, but maybe survivor oriented, helping people get through trauma and become whole again. So how did you get involved in this Flint water case? So my career started in Atlanta. Uh, like most good bulldogs who graduate from the University of Georgia, my trip about 55 miles south just took me to Atlanta. And I always kind of represented people uh, who had been hurt. But a lot of my cases and a lot of my work focused on children. I practiced in Georgia for about 12 years. And my dad lived in New York. He had been sick for a while. My wife and I had just kind of built our dream house in Georgia. I was a partner in a law firm. And between my dad being sick and, you know, raising two kids in the South, you know, we, we just made a decision that it was important to move to New York. We moved to New York. I ended up working with my firm, Levy Konigsberg. Uh, they kind of took a chance on me. I was you know, this kid from Georgia who, you know, who tried a bunch of cases and did some good work, but they didn't know much about me. 
And I started doing lead poisoning cases for inner city kids in New York. So, you know, lead poisoning typically involves paint and housing that's really old. Mm-hmm. You look at, you know, the New York City Housing Authority and, and public housing in New York. It's just a, a foundational place where kids are poisoned. About two or three years later, I started getting a calls from some folks in Michigan who probably just Googled lead poisoning lawyer. And a woman in particular called me and told me that her kids had been poisoned by some water in a homeless shelter. And I thought she was crazy. Uh, Most of the poisoning I had ever heard of came from paint. I told her I wasn't yet licensed in Michigan and I didn't know if I could help her, but I would look into it. About a week or two passed. My wife, who's kind of my boss in life, and my secretary. <laughs> Mine too. My, Mine yeah, too. Yeah, all the women in my life, my boss and my legal secretary convinced me that I should really look deeper into it. Called the lady back, begged her to let me help her. Uh, she laughed at me, considering I told her I wasn't even previously licensed in Michigan. She signed up. And then one day I heard Rachel Maddow was going to be hosting a town hall from a, a elementary school in Flint. And I just wanted to go listen. I flew there on a whim on a Thursday or Friday morning. I was dressed in a suit. I showed up. Nobody would let me in because I looked like the lawyer that I was. I went back to my car that I rented. I put on a a t-shirt, a baseball cap backwards and some jeans, and they let me right in. I heard the story of what was happening to people in Flint. And I also heard some information that felt like it was not completely honest. Uh, They were essentially telling folks that if you just eat more leafy greens and we hire more school nurses, (laughs) that all the kids are going to be okay. I went back to my office in New York. I begged my partners to let's just go there. You know, if we're if we're going to tout ourselves as these great lead poisoning lawyers, this is the biggest lead crisis that I've seen in my lifetime. And if we don't go, we're frauds. And I started going every week in February 2016 for four days, three days, five days a week for about 10 months talking at churches, talking at schools, meeting people in person. And How many clients telling, do y'all have? How many clients do y'all have? So over, so started out with about five and then it grew to about a hundred. And, you know, five years later, I represent 2,600 children individually, not, not a class, just individual kids filed all of their cases individually. You filed 2,600 complaints. 2,600 complaints. That when, once we got to federal court after filing close to 1,000 in state court, we were able to file them more in groups. But yeah, I mean, every single person we represent has a case on file in their own name, you know, in their child's own name. And, uh, and so it just kind of took off. I mean, it, you know, back and forth to Michigan for about a year. And, and, you know, I'm there now before COVID. You know, I was there every week as well, trying to settle the case and also, you know, litigating the case. So that's kind of the story. Got a little bit lucky. And kind of when sometimes when you're, you know, your passion meets the circumstances of a situation, even though you didn't create the collision when they collide, it, it turns into something that's really meaningful and important. And I feel so lucky that I've gotten a chance to work with these kids. Give, give us a quick overview of what the Flint water crisis is. I mean, we read about it. We hear about it. I've actually had Garland Gilchrist on the show uh, who talked about some of the things that we call our big Gretch. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer has been able yeah. to do. Just give us, I mean, what, what are the, the Cliff Notes version, not the legal arguments, the legal theories, because I'm going to talk to you about that over a beer later. But what's sure. the Cliff Notes version of, of what the Flint water crisis truly is? So it started out in about 2012, 2013, Flint was in financial crisis. And there's a funky law in Michigan that permits the governor to appoint an emergency manager. Uh, we've heard there's about a that financial guy. situation. Yeah. So Governor Snyder appointed first a, a man named Ed Kurtz as emergency manager. 
Flint was on Lake Huron water from Detroit for decades. Uh, it was pretty expensive. The water came pre-treated from Lake Huron through the Detroit Water and Sewage Department. Decision was quickly made for Flint to switch to a new water source, a conglomerate called the KWA, but that was not going to be ready for a few years. And if they came off of Detroit and switched to the new source, they were going to need an interim water source and they decided to use the Flint River. Flint River was notoriously dirty. General Motors, for years, according to citizens there, had dumped uh, you know, waste in the water. And when they ultimately made the switch to the Flint River in 2014, it was done without using corrosion control, meaning that whatever was in the water was going to leach, was going to allow elements from the pipes to leach to the water unless you use corrosion control. And so what happened was a city made up of primarily lead pipes had water going through the pipes that was not treated water. And so the lead leached to the water, the water reached the end users and the end users ultimately consumed, bathed in, made baby formula with, cooked Mm. with, water painted with lead. It It was was everywhere. It was in schools, it was in homes, it was in restaurants, it, it was effectively everywhere. And so then the case was really about why did that happen? How did it happen? Whose fault was it? And how were each of these people, whether they were children or adults, affected and damaged by it? That's crazy, man. It's crazy that they didn't even care. Give us, give us a, who was ultimately held accountable criminally for what happened in Flint? I know people always ask that question. I know that's not in your, that, that's a parallel track. It's not necessarily in yeah. your lane, but who was, who was held criminally liable in that case? So I, you know, either ironically or sadly or confusingly at this point, no one. Um, there was uh, criminal prosecutions took place, uh, starting with investigations in 2015. There were cases that were brought before judges, which were ultimately bound over, meaning a judge found right. the evidence Probable credible. Cause. And mm-hmm. yeah, and there were a number of folks who were bound over, two in particular for manslaughter. But as you know, in, in 2018, when the administrations changed, because as you said, Big Gretch you know, was elected, <laughs> there was also a new attorney general. And what they decided to do was dismiss all of the criminal charges that had previously been brought under the old administration and kind of wipe the slate clean and begin their own investigation. And so now Attorney General Dana Nessel, who was elected alongside Governor Whitmer, she is continuing to investigate and potentially prosecute those cases. But as of now, what were some pretty hefty prosecutions and bindovers for charges like manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, those have been wiped clean. And now everyone's kind of waiting on pins and needles to see what the the new criminal investigation brings. Are you, I mean, this is just a, a, a wild question to ask, but have you seen these water cases elsewhere? And the reason I ask is because I'm a lawyer in, in Columbia, South Carolina at the Strom Law Firm. We recently filed a water case about a year ago because uh, the city uh, was using a cleaning agent that is called Halosan that was only used to clean um, hot tubs and jacuzzis. It wasn't it wasn't for dr- for drinking water. But are you seeing these type of things pop up around the country, not just in Flint? Yes. Uh, short answer: Yes, it's everywhere where there's old infrastructure. And so, Newark, New Jersey, right now has a very significant water problem in Washington D.C. A decade ago, there was probably an even worse water problem than there is in Flint. You see it in places, even in Michigan, in Detroit, in Oakland. You know, the reality is, is that we live in a country that has a lot of old pipes and old pipes are made out of lead. And if you don't, if you don't get 
like almost all the problems in our society, if you are reactionary to the problems rather than proactively try to fix something before it actually occurs, you're always going to have some collateral damage. And in Flint, nobody really did anything about it until people were hurt. In Newark, New Jersey, nobody really did anything about it until people were hurt. Even in public housing, when you're talking about like the New York City Housing Authority, it takes people getting hurt oftentimes before public officials take action. And if there was a way for us to figure out how to take action before people get hurt, we would save a lot of lives. And I'm not just talking about... I mean, we could, it is. We can just spend a trillion dollars on our infrastructure, which should be bipartisan, and get it done. But nobody wants to come together to do that. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, there's so many stories about how this settlement even happened that, that go to partisanship. And, you know, we dealt for two years with the Snyder administration. Well, that, that's my next question. So yeah. talk about the settlement. Like, who pays? Who gets paid? Where the money goes? Where did it come from? How did this happen? So the about... Two and a half years ago, federal judge uh, Judith Levy in the Eastern District of Michigan, she appointed two neutrals, uh, mediators, essentially. One of them is a legend, uh, former Senator Carl Levin from the state of Michigan, who oh, uh, he's, yeah, just, he, yeah. he, he's just an amazing figure, an unbelievable character, and has so much credibility and depth to who he is. The other mediator was a woman uh, named uh, Pamela Harwood, who's the former chief judge from the Wayne County Circuit Court, which is Detroit. And then this is very Games of Throny, but there's someone appointed called a special master, and her name was Deb Greenspan. And all three of them started working with us and all of the defendants on how can we settle this. For two years, we mediated almost on a weekly basis in Detroit, sometimes in Ann Arbor. And ultimately, it's the state of Michigan. The other defendants remain in the case. So the case isn't over. We continue to prosecute. And frankly, the settlement with the state of Michigan is still pending court approval, which I think will happen. But of course, a court needs to approve it. Of course. Especially when you're dealing with minors, too. So I mean, there there are levels of approval that must go through. The complexity associated, you know, kids can't touch their money till they're 18 years old. Correct. So, many so you have to, they have to build s- trust. Yeah, exactly. Trust, structured settlements, you know, registries of the court. So all of that's kind of baked into what will ultimately be the settlement if it's approved. But it's $600 million from the state, 80% of which is going to kids. And you know, oh, that's for, me, for me, that was the entire thing. You know, that's the ball game. Yeah. And I, I appreciate and believe that a lot of people suffered in Michigan who were not children, whether it was hair loss or rashes or just the, the pain in the neck of having to use bottled water for everything. But this is an entire generation of kids that were poisoned. And so, you know, roughly 80% of, of $600 million will be going to children. 65% of all the money, the entire money is going to go to kids who are six years old or younger. And so what the Centers for Disease Control says, and what almost every scientist and medical professional says is that kids who are six and younger are the most vulnerable to brain damage from lead poisoning because their brains aren't formed yet. Yeah. And you know, while everybody can be affected by it, it's really that age group that's most affected. And so Majority of the money going to those kids, there'll be categories within categories. You know, not everybody is hurt equally. And one of the things I've said from the very beginning, I got two kids, one's 11 and one's 12. And they're, they're both, uh, you know, they're two boys. They've lived in the same place. They came from the same mom. I was in the hospital room both times they were born. And, you know, if they were both lead poisoned at the exact same time by the exact same amount of lead, they'd be damaged very differently. One of them, if you taught a Mandarin, would probably speak it fluently tomorrow. The other one, you know, some days I could barely get to read and write in English. 
And, you know, to just drop a bunch of money on a population of kids and say, split I it. cannot wait for your wife to hear this episode. Oh, I'm in big trouble. Well, wait, 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 wait till my kids. Start um, you know, the, the reality is, is that kids are hurt differently. And, and if there were five kids in the Bronx who were all lead poisoned in the same building, we would never just give them all the same amount of money because it was the same building. And so the kids in Flint should not be treated kind of uniformly simply for convenience or expediency. They really are going to be treated on their own merits individually. And all of them are eligible. I mean, every one of them is going to get something and I think it'll be significant. But generally, kids six and under are going to get the majority of the money. Kids under the age of 18 are going to, are going to do very well. And then there's still going to be 20% of $600 million for adults who suffered their own level of, of harm, including property damage. So fees are on top of the 600 and costs? No. Fee, so fees need to be determined by the judge. There's not a yeah. built-in fee mechanism. Okay. So it's not like part of the negotiation is, yeah, well, the yeah. state's paying us this too. Um, most of the, By the way, most of this is not a class. And so all the kids oh, are so going to be Oh, so you have individual fee contracts yeah. with it. So all of the kids are going to be treated individually. Every represented adult will gotcha. be treated individually. Gotcha. And so people have already signed up with their own lawyers for what they expect to pay. Now, that doesn't mean that those contracts will necessarily will be honored. Yeah. Of course, because you're not going to have, I, with, with all due respect to all of my other lawyers out there, you're not going to have a 40% or even a third, a 33% fee contract that a judge is going to uphold in a case like this. So the judge, so in Michigan, fortunately for the citizens, the, the statutes in Michigan only permit for a third in terms of fees. And so yeah. there are no 40% retainers. So we'll see what the judge does, but no matter what she does, you can't take away, even if she did a third, I mean, $400 million for this community. And, and one of the lot, best things, yeah. one of the best things about the entire thing in my mind is I've learned over the last five years, you know, folks in Flint, they stay in Flint. They're Flint proud. They are. Oh yeah. They, the Flintstones. We remember the Flintstones from Michigan yeah. state. For sure. Right. And so, and so ultimately, this money will, in some form or fashion, be invested back into the community because people don't leave. Yeah, yeah. And the kids' money, as you know, because of either the trusts or the structures that each kid's guardians choose for them, it'll increase in value over time because there will be annuities purchased as part of either a structure or a trust yeah. that are guaranteed to increase in well, value. Let me ask you this, Corey. I mean, I, you and I, we both have children. If somebody were to give us a million dollars and we know our kid's going to have some long-term health issues, we would say, hell no, you're crazy. My yeah. question is, is $600 million enough? No. And I say that as someone who signed the agreement to, to have it. I mean, there's, there's no amount of money that you couldn't pay me a billion dollars. You couldn't give everyone in my family $10 million for the rest of their lives to have one of my kids Correct. not yeah. be able to reach his potential. And, and so, no, it's not enough, but it's, it's significant. And I agree. There's, even though there's not going to be enough, no matter how much it ultimately is, there are significant defendants left in this litigation who have fault of their own that may be beyond the fault of the state from private engineering companies who assisted in the switch or came in later and tested the water and assured the community that it was safe, knowing damn well that it wasn't safe. Yep. There's going to be more on top of the 600 and, and, and still not going to be enough. So my last question for you today, I, I want to, this is an amazing story. I know I saw this settlement in the news and then when, when Nick, when you and Nick reached out, I was like, I just want my, my listeners, I want everybody on the ringer and Spotify one to know the hard work that's gone into it to also know that Flint still exists. You know, we live in a McDonaldized society where news comes and goes. My last question to you, Corey, while you're here on the Bakari Sellers podcast is what's next for Flint, Michigan? So for the folks in Flint, um, they've been ravaged, man. This, this is a community that is indicative of 
why we protest. It's indicative of a community. It's indicative of communities everywhere that suffer from poverty, brutality, not just from police, but just generally just being thought of as afterthoughts. There has been, from what I've seen in being there, investments being made in the community by smart entrepreneurs and business folks that were not taking place two, three, four years ago. There's restaurants, there's, there is a development of infrastructure there, pipes are being fixed. I think that this community will continue, A, to fight for relief from what happened to them as a result of the crisis. They are continuing to band together to fight the effects of COVID. COVID ravaged Flint. It's a black Um, city. It's been ravaging black folk. Yeah. It is. And so, you know, next is hopefully in the next year when this money is, is truly infused back into this community of people who do not leave in combination with the investments that have been made, both through federal grants, through money from the state. When you combine the 600 plus million dollars that will ultimately flow to Flint with much of the investment that's been taking place back in the 1980s, Flint was a booming economy. General Motors was there. The population was over 200,000. I mean, now that the economy is down to, you know, the population is down to around 80,000 folks. Hopefully people will want to come to Flint. They had just created the University of Michigan Flint campus when all of this started. And you can see the buildings through downtown Flint. There's these beautiful college buildings that look like it could be a campus in a city that has restaurants and coffee shops and dry cleaners. And you could see it's all there. But when you can't promise clean water to a community of people, then why the heck would you or I or anybody want to put their money into it? And so the hope is, is that this has broader effects than just on the daily lives of people, that it has generational effects. And there's studies that show that kids who have supplements that, that receive money as part of any type of program, they do better in school. They actually, you know, they grow as individuals. And, And this is that on steroids. So my hope is, is that the community exceeds what it was in the 80s and in, in the yeah. early 90s. And um, and it serves in the same way that it's been a microcosm for why people protest and, and all of the things about our country that we need to fix. It may also serve as an example down the road, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. What happens when you actually treat injuries to a community systemically with respect and honor what happened to people? And you make them whole or you try to. Yeah. You try to then, then I, so I think, you know, Flint versus everybody. I think right now Flint's kind of winning and, um, and I hope that they continue to win. And this, this in some way plays a role in that for them. My brother, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that one day we can work together. I am, uh, I didn't know you until I started researching the work that you've been doing on behalf of survivors and individuals who've gone through crises like this. Big shout out to you and your law firm from one lawyer to another. I'm very proud of the work you're doing. You're giving our profession a great name. Thank you. And I'm just honored to be here with you and the work that you're doing and the people that you're talking to on this podcast. Any good information, any honest information that we consume as people, regardless of politics, if we accept it as truth and honesty, and we also explore it to try and make sure that it's real, it can only be valuable to us, even if we don't always agree with it. So thank you for what you do. All right, my brother. Other than the hat, you're a great guy. Have a good day. All right, go dogs. <laughs> oh, there you go.